Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Hi, this is Bob Brooks once again with Long in the Tooth, and it's my privilege to be with Earl Douglas today of ADS South. Earl, we're glad to have you. Thank you, Bob. It's a real privilege to be here. Well, Earl, you have a, a pretty interesting background. You, you became a dentist and uh, realized uh, that maybe you weren't quite wired for that and, and uh, after a period of time, but you'd, you'd, through that period of time, you'd served in the Army and uh, in fact, in Fort Benning, Georgia, where uh, my grandfather served during World War II training paratroopers. So that's pretty neat. Uh, and then as you transitioned out of dentistry, you went into, uh, uh, got your MBA. And uh, tell us just briefly how you uh, made that transition from dentistry into practice brokerage. Well, as uh, most important events in my life, I'd like to tell you it was a well-planned and thoroughly researched uh, process, but it was just an accident. Uh, a broker sold my dental practice. I had been in private practice for five years and decided that I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to do this anymore. And a broker sold the practice, and then he... Uh, asked me what I was going to do next. And I said, I didn't know, but it wasn't going to be dentistry. So he said, would you like to work with me? And having nothing else to do, I said, sure. And that's the accidental entry into practice brokering. Well, you know, so many uh, successful business people in America have gotten their businesses started the same way. I was eating at a Bob Evans restaurant recently, and it reminded me of the time when I met Bob Evans, and he uh, actually asked him to speak to a group when he was living, and uh, he uh, uh, shared how he uh, got started in in his business, and it was uh, some of these uh, business startup stories are amazing. Earl, let's get started on our topic of the day, and that is, do DSOs pay the highest price for dental practices that they purchase? And our very first uh, question along that line, with that being our topic, is what seller in their right mind would turn down an offer of 100% of a year's gross or even more for their practice when you have appraised a practice for only 70% of its gross? Well, that is really an important question, and thank you so much for asking that. Uh, the first part of it, the answer is yes. Uh, the highest prices I've seen paid by any buyer have been paid by DSOs for practices. So, yeah, undeniably, 
that has been the case. But what seller in their right mind would turn that down? And uh, I think the answer to that is a well-informed seller who understands all the elements, terms, and conditions that are associated with this ultra-high price. So an educated seller will look past the price, which is a top-line item, and make sure he does get down to the bottom line and understand what that is and how it's affected by all the terms and conditions that are associated with the offer. Well, you've put together quite a presentation uh, outlining the uh, a spreadsheet, outlining how uh, the numbers shake out with uh, the DSO purchases versus uh, um, the alternatives. So we don't have a chance to share that visually on the podcast, but hopefully we'll be able to convey that in, uh, in what we share today. So um, how is the price typically paid? Well, different DSOs all have their own models. Uh, typically, the, the most popular model seems to be uh, 100% or more of a year's gross is the price. The uh, DSO would typically pay 80% at closing. And if quotas are hit the next year, the seller receives another 10%. And in the following year, if quotas are achieved, uh, they would get the other 10%. That seems to be a typical structure. I uh, have come across one DSO who is a little more uh, upfront with the process. They would pay 100% upfront and uh, there would not be a holdback and there would not be quotas. But at the same time, they were not offering the same uh, top dollar prices. But for the most part, uh, the DSA wants to see the uh, cash flow continue as it had in the past and put that burden on the seller to make that happen. Well, um, I've got you know, probably 12 questions to every response that you have. And I want to get into that, but I don't want to, uh, you know, we've got other questions that uh, it's important to get into. So if we have a chance to get into the additional questions, that will be great. Describe the contingencies uh, from meeting the certain conditions and how is the seller uh, who's now the associate able to impact that? That's another very good question. The contingency would be in the first year that, um, a certain income level would be met, uh, possibly what the revenues were for the previous year. And essentially, I guess in my way of thinking, the DSO buyer is asking the seller to warrant the DSO's managerial ability. The seller is expected to uh, meet a certain quota, but they are no longer the owner, the manager, the person in control, the person with authority. They're only the person who can suffer if the DSO's management is not as effective as theirs was. So that's a big consideration when you're looking at a quota. Um, how much control do you have in meeting it? And uh, not an owner, it is not all that much. What items might be affected as far as uh, 
do the DSOs put much uh, arm twist? Do they uh, use arm twisting very much to uh, encourage a, a difference in treatment planning recommendations, or do they change labs? Do staffs change? Uh, what all changes uh, when DSOs are new owners? Well, anything and everything can change because the DSO is now the owner and manager, and the primary goal for the DSO is to maximize the practice profits. And just to be clear, profits are not practice net incomes, but profits are what is left after all expenses are paid, including salaries for dentists. So we could see um, a lower paid staff. We could see uh, gross purchased supplies that might not be what the seller is used to. And there may be incentives to use uh, the DSO's labs, maybe a premium price to the seller if they uh, didn't use those labs. And any aspect of the practice which can result in uh, lower overhead, less cost, and more profit, you could expect. Yeah, work schedules could change too, I imagine. The, uh, you know, all this begs the question, just looking at the uh, price, because we started off this uh, discussion today talking about DSOs do pay the highest price, is the price seems like a no-brainer. Why would you need anybody to look over this deal? You know, that's uh, a very good point because many dentists will look and say, Earl, they're offering me 120%. I have to take it. And I said, well, that's the top line. You got to know what the bottom line is. And if it isn't me, get somebody who understands how these things are structured to take you to the bottom line. And let's compare the bottom line. So there is a clawback of that price. Uh, some people say, how can a DSO pay that much for a practice? Well, consider that they're doing it with the seller's money. The uh, middle line items are mainly the compensation paid to the seller for the work they do. And by paying a very low compensation, compared to what the seller has been earning as an owner, there's a lot of profit to be made. And they can take some of that profit and put towards price. But the rest of their profit is clawed back from the seller's uh, income. So how can they pay that price? Well, they use your money to do it with. And you really need a, a thorough analysis to see how to compare it. And if it compares that the DSO, given all the terms and conditions, has the best offer, then by all means, you need to consider it. But um, going into the uh, column here for a second, uh, I have a personal love of dentistry. I am a dentist. Now, you would not want to be my next patient. It wouldn't be pretty. But I love the dental profession and the dentists who serve it. Uh, dentists are some of the best people that you'll ever meet. And they have had a cottage industry. If you want to look at the first dental treatment, it was uh, 360,000 years ago. 
So we've been doing a pretty good job of taking care of patients for a long time. And we've created a profession out of our art and craft. But what I'm seeing as DSOs uh, uh, enter the market and take over ownership and management, the profession is being converted to a business for the profit of shareholders. And uh, nobody benefits from that except the shareholders. Got it. As we try to paint a visual picture of what the compensation difference would be with uh, working for a DSO versus what a practice owner would expect, you've mentioned the difference between the top line and the bottom line already. Could you itemize for us some of the ways that, or some of those items that uh, would be different in the income that, uh, uh, what items make up the difference in the income between the uh, the seller's post-sale uh, compensation versus what they received as an owner? I will touch on just one because that is enough. The one single item that changes uh, is enough to consider, and that is the post-sale compensation that DSOs typically pay to sellers, and it typically is 25%. And this is where dentists who don't seek expert advice or haven't really researched their practice can be led uh, astray. Uh, many dentists think, well, my overhead is 70%, I'm netting 30%. Uh, 25%, that's close enough because of this price that they're paying me. But um, the first thing that dentists need to understand is when you look at your tax return to find out how much you netted, remember the purpose of a tax return. Tax return does not tell you how much you made. It tells you how much tax you owe. And for brokers and lenders and accountants, when we look at a tax return, the first thing we do is adjust the numbers. The 25,000 hours in continuing education, I always say, did you and your family have a nice time in Hawaii? That was a nice tax deductible vacation. And yeah, I know you listened to the seminar for an hour on the TV in the morning. Uh, the $20,000 automobile expense, the uh, $30,000 in health insurance benefits you got, the $50,000 that went into your pension plan, the non-cash deduction for depreciation of $50,000. So when we adjust your tax return to what the cash flow really is, we're discovering that uh, dentists are making much more than they knew. So typically a dentist will, I, I will allocate a salary to a dentist of 35% of their production and add that to the expenses. And then when we see what the net income is, which is true profit, uh, the profit of the practice and the uh, salary we pay them is typically in the range of 52%. So when you go from 52% to 25%, you've given up half your income. And that's what they use part of that for to pay your high price. 
But with the practices that the DSOs target, they're not looking for the average practice like this. The uh, million dollar and up practices, uh, the dentist will have a large hygiene contingent. He uh, probably has one or two associates. And when I look at practices like that, the uh, owner can be netting 75 to 80% of his personal production. Not the gross production, but the personal. And that's what you need to compare to the 25% that you're going to be paid. So the one single thing, we don't have to go any farther, is the commission and understand going into it, what are you currently netting as a percentage of your personal production? And look at the dollar difference in that and uh, take it off of the price. And then let's see where the bottom line falls out. And looking at what you're currently netting, that is a, a recast financial. That's not looking at the tax return as you referred to earlier, right? Right. The tax return is what we call source data. And we start manipulating from there to go from deductions to actual cash flow. And uh, in the tax return, you'll see two things. One is expenses. You had to pay salaries to people. You had to pay lab. You had to pay supplies. You had to pay rent. Uh, you had to pay insurance. Those are actual expenses. And then what we do is look at the deductions, the amounts you deducted for other items, which would have been income to you had you not been able to deduct it as an owner and get the tax benefit. So a lot of deductions turn into net income. And that is where dentists are typically not qualified to understand how much they're earning in their practice. And this is critical when you're considering a sale and your commission is going to be half of what you've been making. Earl, thanks so much for sharing with us during this episode. And uh, could you please share your contact information with us? Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with you. I'd be happy to. It is uh, Earl at ADSSouth.com. And our phone is 770-664-1982. And I hope to hear from you. Great. Thank you so much, Earl. We'll catch you on our next episode. Thank you.